morning again. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and we'll be reading from verses uh, 31 to 46. Matthew chapter 25, 31 to 46. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Verse 31 says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on, on the left. Then the king will say to those uh, on His right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you, thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and said, will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accused, uh, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we did not care for it, take care of you. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of these, least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as we look at this text, a text that uh, has been misinterpreted, I pray that your spirit will uh, give us wisdom, that we can understand your word, and we can apply it correctly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, We could uh, imagine a scenario, a situation where a man is, comes in for counseling, and he's talking with the counselor, and the counselor wants him to explain uh, why he broke his wife's hand. And the counselor, uh, the, the counselee starts uh, talking, and he says, uh, you have to understand that she was not giving me her cell phone. I did not plan to break her hand, but she forced me. She forced me. Or we could imagine a, a couple sitting before a counselor and uh, the counselor asks the counselee, the husband, and he says, why, why is it that you want to leave your wife? 
And he says, man, is that she is just nagging all the time. All the time she's just nagging and nagging and nagging. So the counselor turns to him and to her and says, you know, why are you doing this? And she says, you have to understand that if I don't remind him, things will start falling through the cracks. If he were responsible, I would not have to nag him. He forces me to act that way. Now, in, in both situations, you have a, a person who sees themselves in a certain light. If you would ask the guy who broke his wife's hand, he would, he would say, oh, yes, I, I love her very much. It's, it's that you have to understand that she forced me. He sees himself as this way. She sees herself as this way. And the actions that they do, there's like a schism between them, a huge gulf between them. Like, this is who I am, and those actions that I do there is just because I was forced to do those things. But that's not who I am. I'm a very loving husband. Uh, That's not who I am. I'm a very caring wife who helps make sure everything goes smoothly. And sometimes even us, we, we try to distance between who we think we are on one hand and then how we act on another. We, we try to separate the two. Like, like those actions that I did, they're really not me. It was just something. But Jesus kind of points in this text that um, how we act is what we are. You can't separate the two. How we behave is, comes from our nature of who we are deep down inside. And while we might like to separate the two and, and on Facebook have the smiley face and then in real life have the ugly, mean face that demands everything, it, God doesn't see it like that. He doesn't look at your social media account and say, this is the one I want in heaven. Now, as we look at this, we've been seeing in this, um, this context that... Um, uh, there's this anticipation of a, of a king that's coming and his kingdom. And therefore, individuals should live differently based on the fact that there is a kingdom coming. A king and his king are coming. We saw the parable of the young ladies, the wise young ladies, who made provisions in anticipation of the groom. They, they planned ahead, and because they were planning ahead, they were ready for when the groom came. John Piper mentions uh, that nations will spend enormous amounts of money during wartime uh, because they have a wartime mentality. He makes that comment in uh, Don't Waste Your Life. That war, wartime mentality means that they're on mission. They're going to, they're going to win. Uh, supposedly, we have come to the conclusion of the war in Afghanistan. And we view, we've spent a couple thousand dollars couple hundred thousand dollars, a million, one million, maybe more, I don't know, we've lost count. Uh, I, I saw a kind of a round number, and, and I figure that maybe someone hasn't turned in a receipt yet, uh, because I can't be that round, you know, uh, for our expenditure. But we have a wartime mentality, therefore we'll spend the resources to win. And if we're going to apply that to the church, which I'm not saying that this text is directed directly to the church, but uh, we do anticipate Christ coming back. Now, you might disagree with me. You might uh, not say that the church will be raptured out. But at some point, in some way, in your 
plan of future events, you say that, that Christ will have to come back. He, he said that. So uh, if we were going to apply this, it, it ends up being a church that has to live on mission using resources and, and, and using them uh, anticipating Christ's coming. We also saw the good and faithful servants. These good and faithful servants were the ones who took the master's resources and invested them to provide more for the master, not less. It's not like they took them and enjoyed them themselves. The resources they saw that they had were for uh, to invest in. And if we're going to apply that, God has given us many resources. We could say the Holy Spirit, His Word. And those resources are to be used for God's glory and God's purpose. Not just for ourselves, not just to hold on for ourselves, but to be sharing that with other individuals. Now, as we look at this, Christians must love God by living daily for a future, for a future judgment through loving, serving, and risking for others. That's what we're going to see. This, I believe, is what this text shares with us. That Christians must love God by living daily for a future judgment through loving, serving, and risking for others. And the first point that we'll look at is that Christ will come to judge. We see that in verses 31 through 33. As we look at the verse, it says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that Son of Man is, is a title from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. In that text, we see uh, he's talking about when the Ancient of Days comes and so forth, and he says, Daniel's having this vision, and he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up uh, to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory uh, and a kingdom, and all the peoples, uh, nations, and every man and language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This Son of Man is going to come and is going to establish His kingdom. Now, they have seen the Son of Man. They've been with the Son of Man. They've had a little glimpse of His glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, well, at least three of the disciples did. But this image here of Him coming with His angels is not something that they've seen. And this is going to be incredible. It says that He's coming with His angels, and His angels are these spiritual beings that serve God. That's what their purpose is. We can see them in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. In Genesis chapter 3, 24, Adam and Eve had sinned, and uh, God put an, uh, some angels there to protect the way to the tree of life. Um, also, we see angels used in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. They went to go warn Abraham, and they went to go warn Lot. And then also uh, angels were used to carry messages from God to Daniel in the book of Daniel. We see that it carries this message uh, about things that were going to happen in the future. So here they're coming to serve the Son of Man, this King. And he's coming and it says he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, a lot of times some assume that uh, Christ is sitting on his glorious throne right now. That that's what he's doing. Uh, we have seen in Acts that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and they assume that this is sitting on this throne. But this throne is mentioning, is referencing specifically a messianic throne, a throne that uh, was promised to David. Now, as we look at that, 
And the Davidic covenant anticipates a literal person sitting on David's throne. Uh, someone literal. When God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 8 through 18, it wasn't a mythical figure. It wasn't a spiritual thing of in my heart, someone's going to sit down. But it was someone that was actually going to be sitting on David's throne. Uh, now, if, David, if, if Christ is not sitting on David's throne right now, what is he doing? Well, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and uh, he is preparing a dwelling place for us. John 14, 2, he's interceding for believers. Romans chapter 8, 34, he is advocating for believers. 1 John 2, 1, and he, uh, he's working in the believers' lives. That's what he's doing. He's working in believers' lives. Philippians 1, 6. Uh, if you look at that Philippians 1, 6, it says that he who began the good work, uh, he's not going to get tired. He's not going to stop. He's going to continue working. So Christ's present ministry is not this future ministry that will appear. That, this will happen in the future. Now, it says he's going to sit on this, on this throne, and uh, he's going to gather the people, verse uh, 30, uh, 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. They'll be brought in. They'll be moved in. And as they move in, there's going to be a process of separation. Uh, it's not going to be everybody together. While they've been together all this time, they're going to be gathered together to then be separated out into two, into two different groups. Now, um, they're removing one from another. Now, as we look at this, uh, it gives this uh, picture, this image uh, of a shepherd. And a shepherd might have his sheep and goats all sleeping in the same area. But uh, when he goes to take the sheep out for pasture, he calls the sheep out and separates the two. And that's the image. And they would have recognized that image as they do this. Now, at verse 33 says, And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. One will have a place of privilege and the others will not. Now, as we look at this, that Christ will come to judge, I believe that we can make uh, some applications, two applications from this. The first is that Christ will sit on his throne. Christ will sit on his throne. Uh, we, we live in a very chaotic world, one of wars, of sickness, uh, one with unemployment, uh, one with death. And, and on top of all those type of things, we also live in a world that's full of prideful people. Uh, a prideful person is very hard to live with. Uh, a prideful person will have bursts of anger, or they'll try to entice people with, with certain favors because they'll try to want to control situations. Now, when you confront a prideful person, they will claim that they uh, are being misunderstood. They'll never take the blame. They'll never say, you're right, that was wrong. They'll say, you didn't understand the situation correctly. That's, that's not how it went down. What actually happened was this. You're misunderstanding the situation. And if you were to ask the gentleman at the beginning or the woman at the beginning in the two illustrations, they would say, no, 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 no. I'm not an abusive husband. I'm not a nagging wife. It's being misinterpreted. I am this person. So on top of everything that we're dealing with, we also deal with prideful people. Now, as we look at that and we think about that, sometimes we want to get on a crusade to kind of rid the world of these things. Wars, 
famines, sickness, prideful people. Uh, we might be tempted to try to get rid of these things. And, and what we do when we do that is that we forget to live for Christ. We start to conflate our agenda and we make it equal with God's agenda. And, and so we start pursuing this. And as we do that, uh, we forget to live for God's glory. We, we forget to put him first. We forget that he has called us to go make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We, we forget that. And we start living for our own agenda. But please remember, as you're thinking about that, that Christ one day will sit on his throne. That, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't live correctly or we shouldn't encourage others to live correctly. But ultimately, Christ will be the perfect judge who will sit on his throne. Now, uh, we're not very good judges. I, I know we, we think we're very good judges. But if we were to judge two different scenarios, uh, we, would, uh, we would probably have different outcomes. For example, if we were to talk about somebody being murdered, uh, what would we say that the punishment for somebody being murdered? Well, we'd probably say, well, uh, that person who murders somebody should be put to death immediately. And what about uh, making fun of an old person? What if uh, a group of young people were making fun of old, uh, an old person? What, what should be their consequence? Well, we might say, well, they need to stop it. You know, N Nothing more than just that. Uh, but uh, those two things are related to events in, in Scripture. Uh, there was a whole group of Roman soldiers that murdered Christ. But nothing seemed to happen to them. We don't see a narrative where... Pilate called them over and, and judged them for uh, killing an innocent man and putting them all to death. We don't see that. Uh, but Elijah, remember, he was, uh, he was going and there was some youth and they were making fun of him and talking about him being bald-headed. And what happened? Some bears came out and, uh, and started chomping on the kids. And they died. Uh, that shows that we aren't very good judges because we would probably say, well, to the young people, just stop that and to the murderers, we would want to have them put to death. We're not very good judges. And therefore, we should rely on God, who is the perfect judge. And he, Christ, will sit on his throne. Now, the next point, the next point of application is that sheep and goats are different. Sheep and goats are different. Now, you're like, duh, of course they're different. You know, they're, uh, obviously, they're, they're very different. But, but maybe it's not so obvious. Both sheep and goats have four legs. They have hairy bodies, they have eyes, they have mouth, they have ears, they have hearts, lungs, stomach, livers, etc. The, the difference in them, although it's pretty visual, it really comes down to their DNA and their sequencing, how it's sequenced. While it's rather similar, at one point, it, the, the sequence varies, it changes. Now we can assume that uh, both the sheep and the goats are together. They're living together. They're there. But one day, the sheep and the goats will be separated out. I was uh, going with a friend uh, in Spain. He was a deacon of the church. and uh, We were going out to uh, Tirados de la Vega. We were in Salamanca, and we were driving out to Tirados de la Vega, which was about an hour away. Uh, there was a lady that was a member of the church there. And uh, she would come all the way an hour because there was no, the towns that you go by, there's no evangelical work in them. 
Not that there wasn't a good Baptist church, it's just there wasn't anything halfway presenting the gospel. And so she would have to travel. So every once in a while we'd go during the summer out to their town and have a church service out there. And, and as we're driving out there, Sergei, who's from Bulgaria, he, um, uh, it's all countryside, he, he says, you know the difference in the attitude of sheep and goats? I said, no, not really. I've not really lived around sheep and goats. And he said, you know, sheep are, are very humble. They, they have their head down low. They go around mostly with their head down low. And he said, you know, goats, goats are arrogant creatures. They might take a bite of something, but they immediately left their heads up, are lifting up their heads. And they're like that, looking around. Uh, they're very arrogant creatures. Now, we could say that maybe in the fact that the sheep and the goats are together before being separated out, that maybe some of the sheep act a little bit like a goat. It could happen. They've been seeing their goat friends and how the goat friends have been acting and so forth. And so maybe instead of eating with their head down, they've left in their heads up. But, but that doesn't change what they are just because they act like a goat. They're still a sheep. And it could be also that you have a, a sheep, that uh, a goat that is hanging out with a sheep and says, oh, look how they keep their heads down and it starts to act like that. But at the end of the day, that doesn't change the fact that it's a goat and it'll be separated out with the goats. Now, it goes down to their nature, their sequency of what they are. Now, as we look at this, uh, I, I think we can apply this to two different groups. The first group are those who maybe are here but are unsaved. Now, you, you might have great Christian values. You might live with great Christian values. And you might identify yourself as being more moral than the person beside you. You're like, you know, that guy right there, he's, but I am a good, outstanding citizen. But regardless of those two facts, uh, that doesn't mean you're saved. Because salvation comes through having faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. Where he took your sin and that moment that you believe that, that you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do, he imputes, he gives his righteousness to you. And it changes who you are. It's not that uh, you start acting different. It changes you totally. It, 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 that's how a person ends up being saved because they put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, those of you who are saved... Uh, maybe you one day realized, not maybe, you definitely realized one day that you were a sinner and there was nothing you could do. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you're saved, and that, that's great. But really, in your actions and what you do, you act more like an unsafe person. Your, your values are identical to what unsaved people value. Your thinking process it is just identical to your unsaved neighbor. I mean, just identical. And your actions, i.e. your marriage, your parenting skills, uh, how you work, how, how you attend church is identical to an unsaved person. Now, uh, Christ saved you from your sins. He rescued you. He died in your place. He, he took your sin. Should that not motivate you to live differently? 
Should that not encourage you to live for Him? It should. And we should repent of if we've been living just like the unsaved people. Now, we've seen that Christ will come to judge. And the second point in this sermon is that um, live by loving, serving, and rescuing for others. And this is where we get into this uh, whole section about where he has, uh, was hungry and they gave him food and so forth. Now, what we're going to see are certain actions. And, and some have misinterpreted this, that the actions make uh, one group different from the other. But no, it, it really doesn't. The sheep behave as sheep and the goats behave as goats because of who they are. It's, it's what they do. And what we're going to be seeing is an outplay of their nature. So don't think that we're going to be working our way to salvation. That's not what this text is going to present at all. But rather that people live differently based on what they are. Now, Matthew chapter 25, 34 through 36, the king invites the sheep. He invites the sheep. The sheep are unique because, um, as it says there, they're blessed. They're blessed. And they inherit, they're blessed by God the Father. Uh, God is, uh, according to James 1.17, God is uh, every good and uh, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. God is a good God, and he has blessed the sheep. And they inherit the kingdom, and this inheritance that they're receiving has been prepared from the foundation of the world. As in, when the world was being created, uh, it was being created with a uh, theocracy in mind. Adam and Eve failed miserably and introduced sin into the world. At that time that it was being created, there was already a plan for this new theocratic kingdom. And it's prepared for them. Way back then. That's a sovereign, omnipotent God working out his plan. And and he invites them to come. To come in. Now why? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And he goes through over and over again. We see in verse 37 through 39 that the sheep, they seem to be dumbfounded. They're like, when, when, when did we do that? Hey, here we had our, uh, our home open and, and we saw a guest come and go, but we didn't see you there. We had our uh, soup kitchen going and we had our, our, our food pantry going and we had a, a, a closet with, with clothing and so forth, but we never saw you come through the line. Well, how, how did this happen? They seem kind of uh, not understanding exactly how all this has come about. What, when was it that they served him? Verse 40, the king will answer, uh, Since they served the king's brothers and even the least, therefore they served the king. Now, who are the king's brothers and who's the least of them? Uh, how do we interpret that? Well, some have interpreted this, uh, that it's the king's brothers and the least of these has to be Israel. And they would understand this as being, uh, since this is at the end of the tribulation, this judgment is on how people treated Israel during that time. And as they treated them good, they'll be on one side. As they treated them bad, they'll be on another side. And some have interpreted that. And they'll use, for example, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, where 
God gave the Abrahamic covenant, and as he gave the Abrahamic covenant, he tells them, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And therefore, this is an outworking of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, sheep and goats, etc. And, and that could be, that, that is a possibility. Uh, a, another possibility is that these are followers of, of Christ. These are people who have gone through the tribulation and have believed in Christ. They have put their faith in what Christ did. Now, I didn't say the church because I don't believe the church is here at this point. But these are individuals who have, have been saved. They put their faith in God. God always has a remnant, and this would be this remnant who are the sheep, and then you have the goats. Another interpretation is um, it would be, the, the least of these would be uh, you. Not you, you, but you, that person who is always in crisis mode. You who uh, never is able to help in anything because um, uh, something is going on all the time. There, there's always pasta water boiling over. There's always a pipe breaking. There's always something happening. And they live in this crisis mode, and therefore they can help no one because they are the least of them. And therefore they need people to pour into them all the time, all the time, all the time. They can't give water, no. They need water. They can't give any food. You invite them to a potluck and they show up with nothing, you know, except for to-go bags, right? Uh, they, they are the least of them. I don't believe that you can self-identify yourself as the least of them. I believe that this presents those who are followers of Christ. Now, these followers of Christ, uh, they were serving God. They, that's what they were doing. They were helping those, and as they were helping individuals, they were actually serving Christ. Now, as we see in verse 41 now, it says, Then he will also say to those in his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, that's a very harsh word, depart. It's an imperative. It's a command. And really, it can be used as a euphemistic figure of speech for, uh, for dying. We know from John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if the one who gives life is throwing people out, then there's no life there. There's no possibility of life. And he says, depart from me, cursed ones. The word curse is a unique word. It happens only five times in the New Testament. And uh, three of them are where Jesus mentions it. Uh, the two others can be found in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute, bless and do not curse. And also used in James 3, 9, that says, uh, with it we bless our God, uh, Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, talking about the tongue, who we've been made in the likeness of God. Uh, this cursing is to talk evil. Now, we're not supposed to curse, but God will curse those uh, who aren't these sheep. They're going to be cursed. And it's into eternal fire. There's been a lot of debate as to what this eternal fire is. Uh, for some, they have taken this to be rather harsh. How could a loving God eternally punish somebody? Uh, so some have said, well, you know, uh, just like if you were to uh, throw uh, weeds into a fire, they would burn up. And the fire would go out once everything's burned up and consumed. So, so maybe people don't 
aren't punished eternally. Maybe they are just punished eternally in the senses they are thrown into this fire, and then once they are totally evaporated, disintegrated, then, uh, then they don't punish anymore. They're not being punished anymore. Uh, there is a difficulty that we'll see when we get down to verse 46 with that. But this eternal fire was originally prepared for the devil and his angels, for these demons. So they're not necessarily prepared for them, but they will also be thrown in them because they are with the devil, they're not with Christ. At their heart of who they identify with, even though they would say, I'm a good Christian person, their actions show that they're really not, and uh, they're against God. And, and therefore, they're going to be cast with the devil and his angels. Now, verse 42 says, uh, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will say to themselves, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? It, it, it's very similar to what the sheep say almost identical, but in the sheep situation, it's, um, we were doing these actions, but we didn't notice you go through the line. Like we were handing out clothes and we didn't see you grab the bag of clothes. We were handing out food and we didn't see you uh, grab some food. In this case, it was like uh, we didn't see you. And had we seen you, we would have served you, which is a different way of living altogether. It's kind of that idea that I love God, I just don't like people. That type of mentality is what they're uh, giving off. And what's going to happen to them? They decided not to risk. They decided not to serve, to sacrifice, or to love. And therefore, they are not have the same values as Christ, the one who saved them. Uh, as we look at this, uh, verse 45 says... Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, uh, you did not do it to me. Again, it's to the least of these. So what's the consequence? Verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If you just had eternal punishment by itself and eternal fire by itself, you could say, you could make the case well, maybe eternal is in the sense of eternal as long as the people were there, and, and maybe it's just a punishment until they disappear into nothingness, and therefore they go through all eternity as being nothing. But the fact that the Jesus puts that there is into eternal life, uh, you can't have eternal life but then not have eternal punishment because they, they go parallel to each other. They, they are the opposites. One is eternal life and one is... You can't say, well, yes, I like eternal life, but I really don't like the idea of God eternally punishing somebody, so I'm going to hold to the fact that there is eternal life where someone's living in the presence of the Lord, but I'm going to disregard an eternal punishment away from God. It doesn't work here. You end up having to butcher the text because they're put together. You have to kind of like totally get some scissors and kind of cut out because you're going to hold on to one but not to the other. And that's not how it works. There's an eternal punishment for those whose nature is different from the sheep because they have a different Lord in their life. Now, as we look at this, I want to 
point out a couple different things. The first is that this is not works salvation. And a lot of interpreters over the years have interpreted this as works salvation. That, okay, maybe I haven't been doing what's correct, so I'm going to get out there and start doing good works. This is not works salvation. The, the sheep did not become sheep by doing the good works. They were sheep because of a transformation that happened, a birth that happened. And therefore, they did what was in their nature. The goats, there, there was no transformation. They lived for the devil and, and, and his angels. And this is not a works-based salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. Always has been. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, another thing is that um, do, do not live for works. Don't live for works. Uh, some can get into this where they, they live for works. And they're all about works. They'll come up to me after the church service and, and tell me how the church needs to be doing this ministry and they need to be doing that ministry. And usually when they're telling me that these ministries need to be done, they're implying that I need to lead them and, and, and do them and develop them. Uh, they never really volunteer to lead that ministry and, and do it, right? Uh, we need to be doing more things, and, and I, I need to be doing more things. But that's not what the text presents here. It's not an organized effort of, of sheep coming together and uh, having an assembly line of food, clothing, and, and water. It's not that at all. It's individuals that God has sovereignly put into communities and workplaces who are living for the glory of God. They're, they're using the influence, the place where God has put them, for God's glory. It's not some organized event that the sheep are coming to and doing. Rather, it's just living out for God, using His resources for God, in anticipation of a judgment that's going to come. Some people love organized ministries, and that's okay. But this is individuals living out for the glory of God. Wherever God has put them, whatever neighborhood, whatever job place, wherever they're going, they're living for God, and that's what they're doing. Another point of application here is um, some might say, I love God, I just don't like people. Uh, that excuse I've heard. Or they say, I'm not good with people. And I don't know how good you have to be with people to give them a glass of water. <laughs> like, that seems kind of just easy, you know. And then you give them the glass of water and then you say, oh, by the way, let me share to you about Jesus Christ. I mean, that seems like a natural segue, right? I mean, it seems pretty easy. You don't have to, like, really be a theologian to do that. But some people want to play around with the fact that I, I'm all about God and Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. I, I just don't want to share that with anybody else. I'm going to keep it all to myself. Well, that's not what presents here. You, you can't do that. If you love God, you're going to be loving people too. Uh, both the Apostle John and James talk about you can't say that you love God but hate your brother. They, they both make that case. Uh, the last point, which is a reiteration of the first point, is that Christ will judge. He's going to judge. That's the main point of this passage, is that there is going to be a judgment. There's going to be a separation that will happen. And you might think about this and contemplate it and think, well, hot dog, I'm ready. I'm saved. I walked an aisle. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm good to go. That's great. But what about your coworker? What about that neighbor? What about that family member? Let it not be that they never heard the gospel from you. 
May it be that they have rejected you time after time after time. And if they go to hell, that's on them. But let it not be that you were happy that you were on your way, but you decided not to share it with anybody else. Or maybe you say today, I'm not ready. I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. I, I've relied on the fact that I'm from Texas. I've relied on the fact that I'm American. I've relied on the fact that I pay my tax. I don't know. But you're relying on something other than Christ's work on the cross. And then today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day where you put your faith in Jesus Christ and, and have eternal life. Christians must love God by living daily for a future judgment through loving, serving, and risking for others. Are you loving, serving, and risking others? Risking for others? We saw at the beginning how there was the two people that came in for counseling. Both had this idea of who they were, but their actions were separate from what, who they thought they were. And I wonder if that's the case for some of us today. Maybe we claim to be a Christian, but our actions are showing something different. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I pray now as we think about this, pray that we will examine our hearts and see maybe we have a double personality, who we think we are and then our actions. I pray for those who are not saved that today will be the day of salvation, that they will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who are saved. They've been living in sin. In fact, you can't tell a difference between them and every unsaved person around them. I pray that today will be the day of repentance and that they will live for that future judgment that's coming. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing a song of invitation.